Right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for gathering us together as family this evening. Thank you for continuing to give us truth that sets us free. Uh, that is a promise of yours, and we really are overwhelmed by it at times, but we're so grateful and thankful that you've, through your own patience and your own providence, decided to give us the things you've given us in time, especially this freedom. Thank you for revealing truth all around us. Thank you for giving us vision. Thank you for giving us divine viewpoint and, as much as anything, perspective so that we might uh, understand the context of our own lives and the lives of those around us and the world at large. Um, thank you also for imparting to us righteousness so that we might also understand the perspective of the apostles uh, and their trainer, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, of course, within the context of their lives. And uh, thank you also for allowing us and affording us the opportunity to relate to them personally as we're finding and as we're embracing as a congregation. This is so valuable and so encouraging. We are, of course, most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to make even an evening like this one a reality. So we do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. To date, in our introductory phase of this series, arguably the greatest emphasis has been, glory be to God. Uh, that's been the intro. In other words, there's nothing special about individuals that have ever been chosen other than that God chose them and God decided to impart or impute uh, righteousness to individuals. So one of the key lessons in studying out the apostles is not necessarily that God will always use unexceptional men, but rather that he can and does use any kind of person regardless of their natural abilities. And that's a big deal. Uh, that God will use anyone from any walk of life. And since we're created by God, uh, we also have to synthesize that when he created us, he knew that he was going to create us and then use us as a result of that us existing. And so he chose to create us a certain way, and then he elected us to salvation. And then he says, I'm going to use you. I didn't make any mistake in the sort of chain of events. You have to think of it that way. I'm up here on the board for additional perspective. Since God owns the balances and scales, as well as the weights that tip them, the only thing that has any positive effect on his scale is his own righteousness, which is a gift. Uh, we can't ever, ever show up with a righteousness that's going to tip his scales in our favor. So since God owns the balances and the scales and the weights, the only thing that can have a positive effect is his own righteousness. That means we're completely divorced, regardless of how fantastic we think we might be or how, on the flip side, how wretched or how not fantastic by world standards we think we might be. None of that matters. Now, to help us really penetrate the deepest meaning possible here, the Spirit elevated our thinking to the big picture this last week. In a nutshell, 
again, glory be to God, then synthesize God's will. We know what God's will, that all are saved and come to the knowledge of Him. We know Jesus' will. He came to seek and to save. And also how God raises His children up in righteousness. These things are meant to bring glory to God Himself. He saves us. He sanctifies us. He raises us up, raises us all up, raises all of us up in righteousness. And these are the things that bring glory to God. May we never lose this simple perspective. As we continue to study the apostles, we'll see that one of the things they did not do, at least not permanently, was ever lose this perspective that you see on the board. If you read the New Testament letters even, you'll see that, in fact, much of what the apostles fought for was the preservation of the point on the board. Remember, as I've taught many times and sort of succinctly stated, um, the apostles were either proposing or defending the gospel, either affirming it or defending the gospel. And if you read the New Testament letters, you understand that that's very true. So, here's something to think about. <clears throat> Satan lies to people, both unbelievers and believers. He tempts them into believing that there ought to be something about their natural selves that is worthy of praise. This is the antithesis of Revelation 4.11. Again, Satan is just a liar, the father of lies. He lies to believers, unbelievers, and he tempts them into believing that there ought to be something about their natural selves that is worthy of praise, even if it's just a little bit. Go to Revelation 4.9. That is the antithesis of Revelation 4.11. So again, not surprisingly, the Spirit's just giving us some more perspective, some more to chew on on the weekend. Revelation 4.9. One of the great exercises that I found myself doing more and more, and I know some of you do as well, is whenever you think about the vector or the direction um, of sanctification, you know, from faith to faith, however you'd like to look at it, but when you think about that vector um, and what God's trying to do in time, look at the end game, which is heaven. What's life going to be like in heaven? Well, that's where he's taking us. So we can learn an awful lot about where we might be now relative to where he's taking us. So Revelation 4.9, And when the living creatures, these are angels in view, give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, um, I believe that's a reference to or representatives of the church, if you would, or church-age believers, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. Worthy, what's the attitude, in other words, of those in heaven they cast their crowns. Again, up here on the board, though, Satan lies to people, anyone, and wants people to think something like, you deserve the crown. You earned the crown. 
You're worthy of a crown. None of those things are true. The only thing that makes you worthy of ever being given any kind of reward or crown or award in heaven is what God does by grace in and through you. And that's why verse 11 exists. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Not us. All glory and honor and power are His. But you see, Satan doesn't want you to believe that. And so he tells lies that are the actual antithesis of Revelation 4.11. And I was just reflecting on this. The very power of God is attributed to Him who occupies the throne. The 24 elders are representative of believers in the church. And we just saw that those with crowns, will what they will do with them. They will cast their crowns before the throne. They will take these crowns, these rewards, if you would, uh, and cast them before the throne. Why? Because they're not worthy. God is worthy of these crowns. And it's funny because it's that chicken and egg thing. The person who wants crowns is the one who doesn't get them. The one who actually is going to receive crowns is going to act like this. It's the same analogy in the spiritual life. Um, the one that wants things, wants blessings for personal gain, they're the ones God might say, you know, you're not going to have them because it's for you. The, it's funny because the one who gets them is the one who never really necessarily uh, wanted them for personal reasons, if that makes sense. You see, these are the same changed hearts that were granted by grace to believers. In other words, these are individuals that represent individual believers in the church even, whose hearts have been changed. And as we've been learning, a changed heart is a righteous heart. And I'm talking about referring to salvation. Your heart is changed at salvation. A changed heart is a righteous heart. Think about this. Man simply doesn't possess the power to save himself. So all glory and honor and power be to God. Man simply doesn't possess the power to save himself. And as we've talked about, I mean, arguably the most righteous thing that happens in our lives, uh, or the greatest form of righteousness given to us is at salvation. We're imputed Christ's perfect righteousness at salvation. We don't have the power to do that. So all glory and honor and power should be God's. And as we've been learning, a good portion of salvation that some seem to forget about is that God literally changes an unbeliever's heart. An unbeliever would never cast their crowns. If they had crowns, they'd keep them for themselves. That would be their attitude. But God literally changes an unbeliever's heart. We know that salvation is a heart issue from a multitude of places in Scripture. So, for example, the first parable, what does it say about the gospel being sown in the human heart up here on the board? We're going to get there, Matthew 13, 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. Again, to our previous point, God changes an unbeliever's heart, and a changed heart is a righteous heart. Where is the gospel seed sown? 
as Scripture says right there in the parable, it's sown in the heart. That's where the gospel seed is sown. And so salvation is by its very nature a heart issue. It's not merely a mental ascent issue. So to our previous point, God changes an unbeliever's heart and a changed heart is a righteous heart. Therefore we say, God's righteousness is profoundly and indelibly impressed upon His creatures through salvation. Whether we are being saved, imputed righteousness, or we are evangelizing others, that's a form of imparted righteousness, or, excuse me, imparted righteousness, God is glorified. The power of righteousness is exemplified through salvation. That's why we read Romans 1, 16 and 17, the very power of God, the power of salvation. The longer we live the gospel, the more profound a certain passage does become. For example, how many times have we read the following, and yet every time we walk away with something new? Go to Romans 1.1. Romans 1.1. How many times have we... I mean, I started this ministry years ago on Romans 1.1 with a completely different perspective about things. And now here we are again reading it, Romans 1.1, years later. And it means so much more. It's so much more valuable, so much more profound. Romans 1.1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he, that says a lot right there, by the way. Just think of what was Paul's whole mission. He set apart for what? The gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making request, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that Often I have planned to come to you and have, prevented, have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And then this is that just enormous statement. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, 
to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed. Now this is where it switches, remember. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So we go from righteousness, the righteous man shall live by faith, to what does the life of the unrighteous unbeliever look like? And they're obviously under the wrath of God. And this entire passage is about salvation. This entire passage is about the calling that Paul spoke of in verse 1. He said, this is why I'm called, to spread the gospel. And if you know anything about the New Testament, and I think some of you it's probably becoming more and more clear, it's either an affirmation or a defense of the gospel. It's actually very simple. Verse 18, again, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So he's already on to unbelievers. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world is invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Think of verse 21 against like Hebrews 6, a person who's tasted the Spirit, who's been enlightened, a person who knows God. Just think about that. Maybe not to the same degree, but you know that if a person knows God, who has introduced himself to them? And by what means is that even possible? By what means is that even possible? Only supernatural means. Look at verse 21 again. For even though they knew God, you don't know God unless He supernaturally reveals Himself to you. Unless He says, I am real. I am the Creator. You are a sinner. You need a Savior. The whole Gospel. That whole thing. That's a supernatural occurrence, my friends. You have to think that way. That's why we can say, look, anyone who goes to the lake of fire has been given an opportunity. And it was a supernaturally wrought opportunity. It wasn't just like some people looked at the, you know, the Rocky Mountains and said, I see God, and some said, I don't. No. That might be a way that he triggers what gets people going in the right direction. I don't know. That's a supernatural thing. But we need to understand and embrace the simple fact that the revelation of God, him being the supreme spiritual being in the universe, the sovereign being in the universe, introduces himself to every living soul that, guess what? He created to be able to hear him this way. So, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. This is all part of the speculation, the invention of man. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts. See, their hearts are involved again. He gave them over to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, 
so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. I mean, as I get into verse 25 and beyond, I cannot help but think of this world, even our own country. Wait till you see Saturday's blog. Verse 25, For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, sound like our country? Yep. Without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they knew, or they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. You might want to read verses 31 and 32, or excuse me, at least 32. Even though they knew the ordinance of God, that those that practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Just think about that tonight. These are not people that are um, at every po or in every possible way uh, completely ignorant about God. He, this is Scripture saying this, that even unbelievers know enough about God. So read that this evening, but that's not our challenge as we press on Romans 1. It's fantastic, but... That was just the Spirit's way of taking us back to sort of ground zero. In light of this magnificent passage here, uh, here's what we might say on the magnificent gospel. For something so simple as the gospel, there's just so much to say, too much actually in a single lifetime. Maybe this is why God has chosen to allow the great theatron called life to drag on as long as it has. I mean, the Gospels, as simple as it is, it's just profound, it's magnificent, it's huge, it's bigger than all of us. It's the dunamis of God. I mean, another key principle from our introduction lessons has been God's sovereign choices. The original 12 prove that God doesn't need intellectuals to spread the Gospel. And Paul proves that God can use an intellectual to spread the same Gospel. However, context is key. Context matters. Life has context. The apostles were no different. You are no different. Every believer is called uniquely. The apostles prove this. Just look at the differences between the original 12 and Paul. And so those are the things that we learned. I would say that's the highlight reel of the introduction. I think we had uh, eight or nine parts on the introduction uh, to why are the apostles so encouraging. Now, just thinking about our own congregation now, uh, and just sharing a little bit on the curriculum. Given our own congregation's history in the epistles over the years, I doubt 
very much that most of you don't already possess at least a working knowledge of the Apostle Paul. As I've alluded to already in this series, I've also already taught specifically on Paul in the past. I think I titled it Meet Paul the Apostle, and it was like three to five parts. In this series, for the most part, we will be uh, delving into Jesus' audience uh, when he uttered the 40 or so parables in the Gospels. So we're going to be focusing, in other words, on the original 12. And this evening is going to be a little bit more, let's say, informational in nature. So we're going to cover some ground, but it's not going to be uh, principle-oriented. Uh, there'll be a little principle here for the next 15 minutes or so, but there's just a couple of things that I want to show you in Scripture, just so that you've seen them. Um, we're going to meet the, the first 12 apostles, and these apostles are listed by name in four different places. And so this evening, we're going to go to four different passages of Scripture and just see what Scripture has to say about listing these apostles. First, we're going to go to Matthew, um, where these are these apostles, these 12, are listed in Matthew 10, 2 to 4. And what we're going to find before you turn there <laughs> is there are generally three groups of four each. And each group is headed up in all four listings by the same person. And so we might conclude based on that um, as well as other aspects of Scripture that they might be sort of leaders of the group. I'm not going to get all crazy with that, um, but it's a nice way to organize the apostles. Um, we do know, though, that Peter was certainly the standout uh, leader uh, of the group. Um, but as we read these passages, uh, you're going to see um, these three groups over and over again. So in Matthew 10, 2 to 4, uh, what we're going to see is Simon, Simon, who's Peter also, Andrew, Peter's brother, uh, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, James's brother. That's group number one with Peter at the sort of the lead. Then Philip is the so-called leader of the second group. And then there's Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, who's a tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot. Judas Iscariot, of course, is the betrayer. Okay. So go to Matthew 10, 2. We're just going to read these things. Again, we're just sort of in informational slash survey mode. Okay? And there's, uh, in each case, we're going to see that there are three groups of four always headed up by the, by the same, quote, leader, but the other individuals sometimes are mixed up in order, as we'll see. So Matthew 10, 2. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. So that's Matthew 10, 2-4. How about in Mark, up here on the board? In Mark... We're going to see this setup of the 12 apostles. You notice that Peter, Philip, and James are still the top of the list, so to speak, of each category. But in Mark, it's laid out this way. Simon, Peter, James, son of Zebedee, uh, John, James' brother, and Andrew's listed last. Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. Go to Mark 3, 16. 
Mark 3.16. So we're just surveying. Mark 3.16. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Verse 18, and Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. The Zealot just means he was like politically charged, if you would. Okay? So that's the list in Mark, and you see a slight difference there. Now in Luke 6, 13 to 16, we see the same three at the top. Simon Peter, Andrew Peter's brother, James and John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, son of James, Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. Go to Luke 6, 13. So you just see some slight nuances between the lists. It's not a big deal. There's not going to be a test on this. But I think it's important to, to note uh, Peter, especially the first group, because the first group, as we're going to see, are also the first ones that he called, the first four that he called. And Peter, of course, being sort of the standout of even those four. Luke 6.13, And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them, whom he also named as apostles. Simon, whom he also called, or whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who is called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, Thaddeus in other words, and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. So there you see that. And then the final sort of articulation of the twelve up here on the board is in the book of Acts, Acts 1.13, where we see Peter, John, James, and Andrew in that order, then Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, in that order. And then James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, son of James. And then Judas Scariot's not even mentioned because he's already dead. Okay? So Acts 1.13, go there. Acts 1.13. Again, you'll just see little nuances, but the same three leaders of the group. And the groups are always the same. Acts 1.13. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James, Thaddeus. Okay, so at the writing of this, Judas Iscariot wasn't mentioned because he was already dead by the time this was written. Okay, so even though we're looking back at a time he might have been there, that's the way it goes. Notice that in all four places, there are three groups of four each. The first name in each group is the same every time, denoting a possible leadership role. I'm not a huge fan of, um, you know, it's listed this way and that way. I've, people like to get goofy with making doctrines out of lists, and I don't personally agree with it unless there's other evidence somewhere else in Scripture. Um, Denoting, though, even so, we might, based on other scripture, especially in Peter's case, uh, denote a leadership role, but we'll get to more of that later. 
Notice also that in every list, Judas Iscariot is listed dead last. In the Acts list, he's not even listed, having already hung himself after betraying Jesus. Of particularly noteworthiness is the first group headed up by Peter, and that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time, because that's where the bulk of revelation on the apostles is, in that first group. That was Jesus' most intimate group. Um, we're going to look at other things like um, leadership, inner circles, outer circles. Um, you know, there's only so much, and I learned this in industry even, not that it matters, but there's only, there's only so many people a person can keep close to them. Uh, and then it's sort of this sort of concentric rings, even within leadership. And that's what we're going to see, that there's an awful lot of intimacy between Jesus and the first group, even more so than the other two groups, which is fine. But, you know, it says certain things about even how Jesus chose to lead. So of particularly noteworthiness is the first group headed up by Peter. As we'll see in Scripture, Peter is the leader of the whole group of 12, not just the first one. As such, we'll be spending more time on Peter than any other apostle, which means the Spirit's going to have us relating an awful lot to Simon Peter the man. Before we press on to our next topic in the series titled Jesus Chose Them, please remember how we ended up with this study on the apostles in the first place. Remember, we're on, we're, we have a, we're on a mission. Remember the whole, I spent a little bit of time on this. We went from propositional to parable teaching form. Jesus went through that with the chasm being, you know, the blasphemy of the Spirit, that whole thing. But this, this congregation is going through it. We spent about a year and three months or so on propositional facets, statements of fact about the gospel. And now the Spirit wants us to go and learn about the parables. But before we do that, we need context. So up here on the board, due to the nature of parables, being word pictures meant to reveal profound spiritual lessons, it is imperative that you first understand the context of the parable. You know, it's you no, know, it's not that much different than, you know, when you try to tell a joke and it flops and you're like, I guess you had to be there, you know, you know what I'm saying? That's why, because it, some things require context. I mean, life requires context. <laughs> so it's imperative that you first understand the context of the parable. Jesus, of course, the speaker, audience, uh, the apostles, of course, cultural norms, time, place, circumstance. Those kinds of things are really, really important because the parables use language that was, you know, naturally understood by his audience and himself. So I'm asking you not to forget about the overall context here. Uh, even though we're moving, you know, to and fro and a little bit deeper uh, now, don't forget where we're going. That when Jesus started speaking in parables, his target audience was primarily even and arguably his chosen apostles, for the most part. There might have been others that have heard it, and we know that there were times where uh, unbelievers heard parables and didn't understand it. So we might conclude that his target audience for the parables were the apostles. He was really trying to train them up to equip them because he was about to leave. So we will be learning a lot about these so-called ordinary men and hopefully in short order, all of you will be abundantly encouraged 
by what you see revealed in Scripture about these individuals. What I believe you'll find is that you'll be able to relate to them personally more than ever. I mean, I hate the fact that, you know, in some parts of the world, Peter's a, you know, big granite 50-foot statue in front of a basilica. That's gross. It makes him untouchable. It makes him something he's not, he wouldn't even want to be. These are real people. And the more you read the Bible and the more you uh, understand the context of their lives, etc., you're going to be able to relate to them at a personal level. And that's a very good thing because I would argue that's where we do a lot of our greatest learning. So let's first finish some additional work to close out the intro part of this series. And as we do so, um, as we start transitioning, let's change our focus from discovering who and what these people were, or who, they were, who and what they were as people, to how they went about doing the Lord's work. But first, a rough timeline of events might help you put things into perspective. Again, a little bit more informational this evening, but this might help. And uh, I've also included a little bit more detail to some scriptural references if you'd like to do reading on your own. Okay, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on um, proving when a particular apostle was called, this, that, and the other. That sounds like great homework. Okay, um, But I'm going to present to you uh, three groups, uh, again, in table format. <clears throat> Jesus did call the 12 apostles. And as we learned, this was group one. Peter was the leader. Andrew, John, and James. I think I've got them listed by Matthew or Luke account. I can't remember. But nonetheless, Peter was actually not called first. Andrew was, and then John, and then Peter, and then James. So if you want to look up Peter, that's John 142, Andrew, John 135 to 41, John, Matthew 421, and James, Matthew 421. Okay, so it went Andrew, John, Peter, James. Now you might get some, you know, rigmarole back and forth, theologian to theologian. But again, it's not that very important, okay, um, to your spiritual growth. So that's group one, though, and they performed as counselors and prayer partners for Jesus. In other words, they were there. They were his inner circle. Even though he called 12, he really did have an inner circle. And it's arguable that Andrew wasn't really quite as close as the other three. Fine. But if you look at concentric rings, three concentric rings, the inner circle is these three or four. Okay? Head up by Peter. Now, group two. They looked after people, affairs, and crowds in a sort of deacon-like fashion. Of course, that was headed by Philip, who was called fifth, John 143, Nathaniel or Bartholomew, who was called sixth, John 143 to 49, Matthew called seventh, Matthew 9, 9 to 13, Thomas called eighth, Matthew 10, 2 to 4. And then finally we have group three. Again, that group looked after people, affairs, crowds, etc. If you look at the accounts, that's sort of what they're doing. And they were almost deacon-like, sort of administrative. And then finally, the last group, which we don't really hear a whole lot about at all. Um, but nonetheless, we might glean that they managed worldly affairs and money. You know, Judas was the treasurer. Head up by James the Lesser. Uh, called ninth, Matthew 10, 2-4. They're all in Matthew 10, 2-4. Simon the Zealot, 10th, 
Judas, Thaddeus, Labaius, 11th, uh, and Judas Iscariot, of course, 12th. So that's a good overview of the order in which the apostles were chosen. Notice that the orders are very similar to the order in which the apostles were listed in Matthew, as we noted earlier. Now, I wouldn't get overly concerned about memorizing these orders, as there is still some contention, even among theologians, about exact orders, etc. So, as I've taught you in the past, if the Bible doesn't explicitly state something, then God doesn't deem it all that important. It's not really that terribly important um, that you memorize the order of how He chose them. What's important is what He does give us, which is more than enough to chew on for a lifetime. Now, with that said, let's first understand the magnitude of how Jesus went about choosing the twelve. Remember, that's this evening's subtitle. Jesus chose them. Why are they so encouraging? Well, guess what? Jesus chose them. But we're going to see something very interesting that he did before he chose them. Go to Luke 6.12. Luke 6.12. We're going to see something very interesting and I believe very encouraging. Remember that ultimately Jesus is a perfect prototype. So we can learn an awful lot about our own spiritual walks, not just by looking at the apostles, but also Jesus himself. Luke 6.12. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to what? To pray. Oh, sounds kind of funny, doesn't it? Why would the God-man have to pray? No, seriously. Isn't that kind of a goofy question to ask? It's a terrible question because it's rigged. But nonetheless, think about that. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. Not an hour, not 90 minutes, the whole night. Just think about that. He went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named his apostles. So you already see something interesting. Simon, whom he called, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place, and there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and, and uh, Sidon who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. And all the people were trying to touch him, for power was coming from him and healing them all. And turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And then there goes the what? Beatitudes. There he goes with the Beatitudes, which we're not scheduled to study right now. But you see the setup. He went up to the mountain and he prayed all night. So a few things worth noting here. First, up here on the board. And this is really important in terms of our own encouragement, I believe. Jesus prayed before choosing the apostles. Jesus was a human being. As a human being, he had to increase in wisdom. Luke 2, 40, 52. 
He often prayed to his Father in heaven before completing a next step in his ministry, like choosing the first 12 apostles, Luke 6, 12 to 13. That was Jesus' walk. Before he made any big decisions in his ministry, he did what? He prayed. How's that? How about your ministry? How about you? Do you pray before you have to make a change in your own life? Because everything you do in life affects who you are as a minister in Christ. Whether you think that's uh, overstepping, it's not the point. That's the, that's the reality. That's the reality. Whatever decision you make in life affects your ability to minister the gospel to others. So every job promotion, every marriage proposal, every um, thing that you put in your body, be it good for you or chemically altering and bad for you, every decision you make has an effect on your ministry. When's the last time you prayed on it? Maybe if you prayed on it, maybe just maybe, if you prayed on it and you knew you were going to make maybe a rash decision or a bad decision, maybe instead of actually rushing through it, maybe if you just were patient, like the Lord Jesus Christ who prayed how long? All night. He's a busy man. He prayed all night, and then he chose the apostles. And then he made a decision. After all night of fellowshipping with his father. So we have to think about that. That I don't believe, and I think this is, I don't know about you all, but you know the P word? Patience. Oh. Not necessarily a forte of most of us. Most of us, it's, it's like a swear word. Patience. But look how patient he was. Look at how resolute he was. Look at how he prayed. Jesus prayed before choosing the apostles. Remember these things. He was a human being. As a human being, he had to increase in wisdom. I'm just giving you that sort of perspective. This idea, this potential, this potential even, being a human of maybe discerning something wrong. He never did. But the potential had to have been there. Otherwise, he technically wouldn't have to pray about anything. He'd just be functioning as deity. So he often prayed to his Father in heaven before completing a next step in his ministry, like choosing the first 12 apostles. We just saw that last reference in Luke 6, 12 to 13, so let's look at the other two as friendly reminders of why Jesus prayed as often as he did. Not the only reason, but a reason. Look at Luke 2.40. Go there. Luke 2.40. I think people, I think sometimes it's easy to forget that Jesus Christ was a human. And that, you know, if you look at like Philippians 2, 7 and 8, he gave that up. He gave up his deity. He uh, subsided, so to speak, in his deity. He put that aside while he became a man and then had to grow up, which is why he can sympathize with us. God's not temptable. But man is. So he had to become man so that he could be tempted. 
temptable. If you're temptable, then the potential is there. I taught you this in the past. Luke 2.40, the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom. And the grace of God was upon him. Well, God doesn't increase in wisdom. He's omniscient. How about Luke 2.52? So we just got to remember that Jesus Christ, Jesus was a man. And he was functioning as a man. And he prayed as a man. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. I think sometimes we forget. So again, the point of the board, Jesus prayed before choosing the twelve. And that's to me, that's very encouraging because this was a big deal. These were the twelve that he was to leave after his own ascension, to leave and, and, and start the early church and spread the gospel. So it was a big deal. The Bible, records, or the Bible records several prayers of Jesus, one of which we studied not so long ago in John 17, often called the Lord's Prayer or a sheet. But one other great scene involving Jesus praying is the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion. Go to Matthew 26, 36. So here's Jesus right before his crucifixion. What's he doing? Matthew 26, 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's uh, James and John, and began to be grieved and distressed. You see who he took with him? That's where we get the notion that you know, the ones that he was so intimate with. I mean, you know how it is. When you're under this kind of distress, when you're under this kind of pressure, think of the most pressure-packed time in your life. If you're not alone with God, which is where a lot of us end up, which is a good thing, I think, um, the only people you want near you are people in what you might call your inner circle. You really don't want other people around. Um, Verse 37 is a picture of that. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and what? Prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping, of course, right? and said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? You see how he addresses Peter. Peter's the known leader. Uh, and that's typically how it works when it's top-down uh, authority orientation. The higher-up doesn't go after the subordinates. He goes after the one that's in charge, the one that reports to him. And so that's what he did. He went to Peter. He said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So he went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Very human um, point in time for Jesus Christ. So ponder this. Up here on the board. Ponder this. 
Jesus' example to the apostles. Think about what we just read. We just read from Matthew, right? That's the Gospel of Matthew. The author is Matthew. Matthew wrote the Gospel after his name, which means that he wrote of Jesus' times of prayer. It is impossible that Matthew wasn't affected by Jesus' constant praying. Just think about that. Jesus was in front of his apostles. Jesus was showing his apostles the import of prayer. He didn't, you know, he could have just said, stay here, I'm going to go away for a little bit. But we know that the apostles saw him praying like all the time. Why? Because he let them see him. He wanted them to see him. He was the prototype. He said, you see what I'm coming up upon? I'm ready to die for the sins of the world. And what am I doing? I'm going to my father in prayer. You think maybe you ought to write this down? (laughs) Maybe make a mental note and not sleep. So Jesus was showing his apostles the import of prayer. Allah even... Ephesians 6, 18, Colossians 4, 2-4, 1 Timothy 5, 16-18. The idea of prayer, even in the early church, was um, propagated. You'll see it throughout the entire New Testament. Well, who started that, necessarily? Who was the prototype? Who trained up the first 12? Who trained up the rest of the church? Jesus did. So it makes total sense that the one that prayed all the time to his Father in heaven and who trained people to take the mantle after he was gone, it makes total sense that his disciples, starting with his apostles, would um, advocate prayer the same way. And I, I, I honestly think, and I, I, looking back, and you know, you can say what you want about you know, the guidance of the Spirit and all that kind of stuff, but uh, even from this pulpit, I haven't done a, a tremendous amount on the topic of prayer. I know it comes up incrementally, you know, which is great. But I don't recall doing a whole series on prayer. Maybe that's something they'll have us do next. I don't know. But I do know that um, <coughs> prayer is a big deal. And it was a big deal to our prototype. Uh, let's look at some scripture. I've got a couple of minutes. Go to Ephesians 6.17. Ephesians 6.17. So the way you should look at this, big picture-wise, is that Jesus' examples propagated through the apostles and then throughout the early church and the New Testament writers. You know, obviously Paul was the one who wrote Ephesians 6.17. Um, so he would have gotten the word, the skinny, if you would, on prayer. And he shared it. And he uh, wanted and encouraged people to pray. Ephesians 6, 17, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, with all prayer and petition. Pray at all times in the Spirit. Think about that. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. In other words, pray for others. Isn't that what we just saw last time around? Pray that others can go out and sow the word because the harvest is plenty, but the sowers are few, right? 
prayed for others to evangelize people. Go to Colossians 4.2. Colossians 4.2. Colossians 4.2. Devote yourselves to prayer. Yeah. Devote yourselves to prayer. That's not a small statement. That's a big deal. Jesus spent how long praying before he chose the 12? All night. That sounds like devote yourselves to prayer. Keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Praying at the same time for us as well. There goes praying for others. That God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. In other words, pray. You know, you know right now that someone's listening to my voice and they're, they don't know what to say. This has been coming up ever since we revisited the gospel. Um, we got this sort of nudge from the Spirit. Take the Great Commission and go out. And people are like, what do I say? Well, why don't you, instead of making fun of them, go home and pray all night that they know what to say? No, I can't do that. Go to 1 Thessalonians 5.16. 1 Thessalonians 5.16. That's all he's saying. He says, pray, pray, pray. That's what Jesus did, and he was perfect. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. Make no mistake, my friends. You ready for this? You, we just, for, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Okay, if God's will for you in Christ Jesus were a pearl necklace, all three of these would be on it. Not two, not one. In other words, if you want the, 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 the shimmering glamour of wearing God's will, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. You should think of that as one contiguous thought. In other words, don't pick and choose, say, okay, I can rejoice, but I don't feel like praying. No, the way that it's presented is that this is one continuous thought. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing and everything give thanks. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing and everything give Bind them up, tie them up. That's the, that's the thought. Do you understand? Don't think, of, don't think of rejoicing always in the absence of prayer. Don't think of praying always in the absence of giving thanks. Don't think of rejoicing always in the absence of giving thanks. <coughs> Why? Because this is what it means to be in the sphere. In the sphere of something. These are, this is one continuous thought. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. You see? It's sort of like a bundle. And that's precisely how we should think about such passages. Who was happier, even though he was heartbroken? Who had greater joy than Jesus Christ? Nobody. No one. Did he pray? Yeah. Did he have joy? But the joy set before him. Rejoice always. 
for the joy set before you. Did he give thanks and everything? You bet. You bet. That's our prototype. So lots to think about, but also um, really encouraging stuff. I hope you enjoy it. We are four minutes over time. I apologize. Not really, but let's bow our heads. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you so much for an evening like this. Thank you for just speaking to us in language and ways that in the context of our own lives we we're able to understand it and digest it and receive wisdom by grace through faith. We ask for the Spirit's guidance and His power as we take the gospel out to a world that desperately needs it. Father, we ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.